Hello, welcome everyone to Potting Rift Tracks. Um, I just want to say up front, we had a little audio snafu uh, at the beginning because I couldn't get the mic right properly. And uh, there's a little bit of the beginning missing. Uh, if you're wondering, we're doing the episode of the Mads Are Back, Battle of the Worlds. And uh, we hadn't talked about much, just uh, Claude Rains being brought in as a big name actor because he had already played a very grumpy character, Professor Challenger, in the, uh, the Lost World. So, uh, yeah, that's about where we left off. So uh, uh, the sound gets normal after this, so, uh, everybody, please enjoy the episode, sorry for the little problem, and, uh, here we go. Yeah, I, I don't think he had, like, a big temper, but, uh, I think those characters kind of came naturally to Claude Rains. It also says, in, in the U.S., this was passed over by major distributors. It was picked up by a very minor distributor it wasn't released until 1963. As a result, it received scant bookings and remained unseen in many areas. But it was almost forgotten until 1986, when it was widely distributed on VHS in a pan-and-scan mode by bargain label Good Time Home Videos. Now, I love this. This, if a person watches this, they feel like, this feels like the type of movie that if you were just dicking around in a, a video store in 1986, you would see this at, like, the bottom of the sci-fi section. And it would be called, like, Good Time to Home Distributors. Like, his more generic name, please. Good Time's a mark of quality for those familiar with their animation. It's, it's a hallmark of every dollar store in America. Actually, yeah, I do remember the good time animation. I don't remember exactly what the one what the ones were, but I remember thoroughly enjoying them. Yeah, they, they do public domain fairy tales, uh, usually um, Beauty and the Beast or Sleeping Beauty, things like that. And I feel fairly confident assuming they are one and the same. The uh, distributor of this film and... Uh, many other uh, knockoff uh, versions of uh, classic fairy tales. Let's see. The credits list the screenwriter as the very Russian-sounding Yazalij Petrov. In reality, the screenplay was written by one of Italy's most respected and very prolific screenwriters, Ennio Di Consini. So, the most respected, very prolific. The most respected thing makes me seem like, as Americans, we're missing something in the translation. Like, this could yes. be, this could be like, yo, Jimbo. Like, there, there's just a separation of cultures or something like that. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting because I think in a lot of ways this movie feels a little ahead of its time, 
but it's just done such a disservice by just the acting, the, <laughs> the effects of the time. It feels like it's trying to bring, you know, one of those classic sci-fi novels to life where you have this arc of people uh, from another world just trying to cross the stars, trying to colonize, and then we just get that one classic scene where the magic is pointing out, oh, this would be a great scene if I could make out anything in it. Yeah, it's a very Frank line. Lastly, it says, after a Simon Outer Space 1960, a.k.a. The Spaceman, Ultrafilm immediately reteamed director Antonio Margariti and writer Ennio DeGonsini to do this film. And it did not go well. I, I can see why. I, I'm kind of amused that, you know, this this is high. I, I'd say this this is pretty, in terms of sci-fi movies, it's, it's not a bad uh, looking type of film. It's, but it is, it does have its shortcomings. It's clearly, uh, you know, not, not that time where you get your 2001s, your, uh, of course, uh, decades later, Star Wars. Um, so uh, it, it's interesting to kind of place that in terms of the cultural zeitgeist, uh, um, where th th this kind of would th this kind of film would drop off the radar. It's not your Quater Mass or anything like that. Well, you mentioned um, you mentioned like ahead of its time, like Star Wars. Quite frankly, I see this. You know, with being Italian, um, Europe has Europe does have a rich history of uh, sci-fi. Like some of it is called ray punk, which means like something you've absolutely never seen before, which is something I really love. Like the xenomorph from Alien would be ray punk, and uh, you know you look at. Oh my god, the comics, comic strips from, um, from Europe, and it's like Valerian, uh, Bar Barbarella, uh, so much of what Moebius did, and you can, you can clearly see, like, why they wanted to make movies like this. It's kind of ironic because right next to me are is a stack of DVDs uh, for the uh, uh, 1964, 1965 run of Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. um, so you know we have all these high concepts uh, that people are trying to capture on film, but it's coming off more like a stage play, and sometimes not very successfully at that. Um, uh, just thinking of uh, further European influences, you know, you have the Mobius. Uh, um, I, I had one on the tip of my tongue. You know, that's not going to make for the most interesting to listen. But uh, just uh, figuring out that, that, that this is something that is gaining increasing popularity. It is reaching a new audience you know, um, and reaching new heights in terms of visualization um, that, frankly, 
the, the, the way the film industry was at the time wasn't just ready to capture. And yeah. that's, that lends to part of its charm, like again, with those classic Doctor Who episodes, you have this very uh, stage-crafted type aesthetic where that's, that's part of the charm where they're doing it in one or two takes. Um, the, these whole sequences, so if someone stutters, you know, you get to see that uh, captured on film <laughs> for all of time. Uh, you'll definitely have William uh, Hartnell saying fornicator instead of the fault locator. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's great to have those, those little things. Uh, I, I feel with the film, you, you know, you do get a little more, it, it is a little more clear cut. Um, and you're, you're not getting all those fumbles, but you are still getting a lot of the shortcomings in visualizing this ma massive, um, ma this massive thing conceptually. Again, it's just such a, it's it's such a dense script, and you know they have to focus on the human side because that's really where the budget can really stretch out. Um, they they can't really do too much with the concept of a planet entering. Uh, entering Earth's orbits or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So it's it just it's just interesting to see how they want to bring it in and just kind of falls a little flat uh, compared to what maybe contemporary audiences may be used to in the world of CGI and just anything like that. Yeah, the visuals are very very stunning at times and also very bad at times but also very stunning at mm -hmm. times um it's, so let's uh go into talking about the movie at this point um one thing that pops out about the movie is uh uh claude rains as i said claude rains is so delightful in this He's so grumpy. He's he reminds me of um, if anyone here is listening, they watch MST. Uh, if you remember the store owner from the Brute Man, you know the one the creeper, creeper, creeper. You give me the creeps. Like he's almost avert. He's almost like that. Like he's one. He's dialed one down. He's just so very on edge. So just, just as, as much as I want to comment on the performance, there's just one thing that absolutely worked for me on a, on a humorous level that was definitely meant to be taken as a lighthearted moment and something funny. Uh, just anytime he asked for a lighter or a match, and everyone just yeah. hands him that. Everyone uh, has one. Just, and he just looks so perplexed. That, that's just such a fun uh, little scene that's played to perfection. Mm -hmm. And really the role is played to uh, uh, perfection as this curmudgeonly character who has, he's, he's no nonsense. He doesn't take anything uh, uh, from, from anyone. Uh, uh, one, of the, one of my favorite riffs was... Um, um, oh, but they left you out, Dr. Cornfield, or something along those lines, and it's like, sick burn, we all heard it. That <laughs> yeah. just encapsulates the character. He's just such a... Again, if... I, I don't know too much about uh, Claude Rains as, an, as a person, but 
this role just seems like it's such a natural fit. Mm-hmm. Um, he is he's just absolutely delightful, and I don't know how many other ways I can say that. You touched upon the character Dr. Cornfield. Yes, and yes, that is his name, Dr. Cornfield. And Dr. Cornfield. When it, it reminded me of two things. Uh, Inspector Cornjob from Godzilla vs. Giron. And I don't know if you watched this cartoon in the 90s. Or, you know, they people are rediscovering it. Uh, Duckman. He, his sidekick is a, like, 1940s detective pig, and his name is Willable Farvel Cornfed, but he's, he's like a jack-of-all-trades, and, uh, the, he's based on the song by Frank Zappa, The Ballad of Gregory Peckery. And that's all I could think of. Those two characters were all I could think of when I heard Dr. Cornfield. You know, given that, that it has such a... Uh, it's rooted in Italian uh, uh, film, um, I'm just wondering if that was their approximation of an American name. Because for some reason, I don't feel they're wrong. I, uh, my... my I feel, you know, they are probably wrong, but in my heart of hearts, I, I feel that there may be a cornfield somewhere in the United States. There, there's probably a Dr. Cornfield somewhere, and it's just such a strange approximation of a name that um, I, I do feel is slightly stereotypical, but I can't entirely rule out with that it doesn't exist somewhere in the United States. Look up the name. There is exactly one match for the surname Cornfield uh, <laughs> somewhere in the world. Uh, there's there's different stuff. Um, two things I want to touch on about the opening credits. First, Ultra Films. That sounds fake. That sounds like the name of a studio you give when you're in a money laundering scheme. <laughs> <laughs> and then wow. what they what they do with the credits so it'll say like uh like uh costumes by you know Francesco Antonioni but it, it, you can tell that like the costume or director was originally in Italian so they have to like paste over this very jittery uh, sign that says directed it's it's a very odd effect I remember they used to use it on the uh, original Dragon Ball cartoons like whenever uh, Goku had to be not naked they would just add these jittery digital pants to him Um, I don't know, just thinking of the, of the director, you know, maybe it's an Alan Smithy type deal, um, where that, that, that's, that's where they, or that's where the com- production company comes from. There's also a little jab at Topaz Torgo or something like that, mm-hmm. um, just alluding to another film that Frank had found. Um, I don't think this one will gain as much mileage as 
that other film that Frank famously rediscovered, an El Paso classic, Manos the Hands of Fate. Oh, yeah. For the, the few listeners who are listening to a Rip Tracks podcast and not familiar with that uh, little bit of history. Uh, I've always been very proud that Manos is made in El Paso. Oh yes, um, I, 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 uh, I, I recently gone to walk for a graduation ceremony for my master's. With yeah, uh, I got to. Uh, I decided to under my gown sport uh, one of the master's robes from that, uh, just because. There's no better place to get a master's than here in El Paso uh, at the University of Texas at El Paso with that of all robes. The master would approve. The master would approve. The master would approve. There's a... That's always. Always. There's a scene where... uh, there's a guy, he, he comes out of the water at the beginning. Like, he's swimming and he comes out of the water. And he has this long lock of black hair, like wet black hair coming down on his face. And I'm thinking, he looks like Jerry only from the Misfits. <laughs> like, that was all um, I was thinking of. I feel it's, it's, it's something we have to say that this... The opening sequence just seems so far removed from everything else in, in the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have these action shots of the of all the spaceships. We have these control centers, and yeah, it looks here we expensive. Have opening by this little uh, beachside um, area with little caverns. The cavern has a uvula, and let me just say, the mads are on fire, just pointing out all these. Oh, incredible yeah. inconsistencies. You're backwards dressed. Oh, just thinking of that scene, I was distracted by. Uh, oh, his nipples gone missing, and just <laughs> things like that. That was such a <laughs> such a delightful sequence, and you know, it, it adds some credibility to the end where they say, "Oh, is all the dogs dream?" <laughs> yeah. It just seems so dreamlike. Where you see these two characters, this couple, uh, just to get. Yeah, they're making out in the beach on the sea in this in the water. By the way, yeah, they're not making out on the on the on the shore. They're making out in the water, <laughs> and it's it's just so dreamlike in a strange way. It's disconnected uh, from what you'd expect these standard things to the standard romance to play out, and then it's so disconnected from the rest of the film. It's a little jarring. But at the same time, it's it's kind of charming because of that. Mm-hmm. The it, the title I found interesting, Battle of the Worlds, because that's very close to Battle of the Planets, also mm-hmm. known as G Force, also known as Gachaman. So, it seems like uh, with a lot of these movies, they're just substituting. They're just changing uh, synonyms. Like, uh, it can't be a Star War. It's a Star Crash. You know. It can't be a Battle of the Planets. It's a Battle of the Worlds. 
And I, I have a lot of misplaced respect for that. Like, that's, that's something I think that is weirdly neat. Just, it, it sounds like what they do with the Asylum movies now. Yes, it's exactly that. Uh, you know, it's that, you know, if you're, you're passing your homework to your friend and say, just change it up a little so it, it's not obvious you copied from me. Yeah. Um, and I feel the progenitor of this one is just that H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Conceptually, I feel it's at the heart of this, um, even though you can't get the spectacle of, like, let's say, the tripods. But mm -hmm. you still get a lot of those elements of this interspatial uh, conflict. Um, so instead of war, let's go with something smaller, like battle. And then instead of worlds, oh, let, uh, uh, let me peruse through my dictionary or, or uh, my book of synonyms. Planets, yes, battle of the planets. I'm going to write that. And, you know, it, it's, it's just a fun way to connect sci-fi traditions where you, you can tell where their origins are rooted, almost by title alone. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, I, I feel that that's something that's very distinctly connected in the world of sci-fi more than uh, any other, where they play on familiar titles that audiences would recognize and then yeah. just change it up a little bit. So, you know, it's kind of like what's recommended next, but probably on the bottom of that Netflix queue. <laughs> It kind of reminds me of... Have you ever heard of the filmmaker Larry Blameyer? I'm not familiar, no. Oh, I think you'd love his work. He, He's very much... He basically makes the type of movies that MST made fun of. like, But he makes them on purpose. Like, they'll be like 50s monster movies... But they'll follow so many of the tropes that it's just hilarious. Like, it turns from weird to boring to just the best thing in it ever. And he, his movies are called Dark and Stormy Night, The Lost Skeleton of Cadavra, The Lost Skeleton Returns Again, and Trail of the Screaming Forehead. Okay, those tiles just leap out at me. I'm like, okay, I need to add that. Yeah. I'll, I'll look for it on the bottom of the Netflix queue. Yeah. <laughs> and here's, here's the thing. For anybody who has, I think it's the special edition DVD of Manos, um, one of the extras is a Larry Blameyer short where he explains who Jam Handy is. So just wanted to let you listeners know that. I have to look that one up. I've been meaning to pick up my copy of Monos. I have the Debbie book. I just don't have the actual film. Uh, I think I have the MST3K cut, but I don't, I don't have the new upgraded Blu-ray. Oddly no, enough, I no, I mean, it's, it's the MST version. It's not the unrift version. Like, it's a oh, special okay. edition MST version. I think. Okay, then I'll have to look through the special features then. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty funny. Uh, I think you'd really like it. And, uh, something I noticed about the movie is, the, uh, 
Battle of the Worlds, um, is that the woman has a very complicated green dress. Like, I, I was looking at it, and I thought, what are the logistics of this? Because you have to pull one flap over, button that, pull another flap and over in another direction, and then keep going, and it's just, it seems like it's more trouble than it's worth. It seems like it'd be your big rigmarole. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely, again, the backwards dress was also a fun one. Um, so, I, I don't know what's going on with that wardrobe. I, I'd like to learn what, what choices were made there. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the thing that Frank comments on is... Uh, one of the astronauts is Mike Pence. Oh my goodness. You're like, he has like the Mike Pence, Race Bannon type look. Yes, Race Bannon. That's exactly who he looks like. And or just any of those anti mutant legislation people that you see in X Men comics. That, that's it's almost hysterical just how much. He looks like a cartoon character. Yeah, he looks like the comic book version of Stryker from God Loves Man Kills. You call that thing human? Yes, that's exactly who I was thinking of. Uh, and, uh, oh my, just, you know, every, every riffer has a distinctive flavor, I, I feel. Yeah. Um, with the Mads, they're definitely, they, they definitely like to broach on modern political, uh, they, they like to make modern political commentary. And I don't think there's ever been a more cursed saying than what's said in this one, which is, Uvalde Space Force. Oh, yeah, that's... <laughs> Just waiting around, and that, that has to be one of the uh, worst things conceptually. I'm sure we could run that through like your dolly or crayon AI and it would just produce the most horrifying <laughs> image. Yeah, that was that Frank can be like it's like what my my mom says, like Frank can be so sharp and so biting and she she just loves Frank. And with Forrester his stuff is a little goofier, which I like. He had like kind of puckish, kind of quality. You know, in recent riffs, he, he's definitely taken on some of the more biting ones um, that I found very amusing. Um, I think he gets, he fires off two or so in the first 20 minutes of this riff. Um, so I, I think he's getting a little racier. All that Frank energy is rubbing off. Yeah. But with Trace, you know, he, he was the biting one in the uh, Annis T3K stuff. Um, mm -hmm. But of course, that's more geared towards a PG audience. It's yeah. PG, PG-13. Um, you know, the Mads aren't afraid to drop a, drop something a little extra. While I still maintain that largely, it, it contains the good-natured ethos where it can be approached by audiences of all ages. There are definitely a few risque uh, riffs that we see through... Uh, through Frank and Trace, and I, I think they enjoy that that freedom. Um, so even though they key to that basic formula of making it 
appealing to most demographics. They 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 definitely take liberties with the fact that they're no longer uh, constrained by broadcast standards. Yeah. Something that uh, sprang out at me was how space seems to be very orange, or at least cause a great deal of orangeness, and uh, the uh, they reference the KTMA special effects, which oh my god, that is such a deep cut. That is so beautifully fan service. That was on point. Yeah. Uh, and it looks like action figures are being thrown out of the ship when they... Someone they just kit-bashed their little rocket ships. And on, on the note of the rocket ships, I, I do love that... Well, first off, they look like something, you know, Wallace and Gromit might create. Get, get to their little <laughs> mm-hmm. cheese mood. And <laughs> with that distinctive orange or some sort of Nickelodeon-type color. Um, but secondly, I just love that the Mads uh, give such interesting designations to the little saucers. They say they kind of look like nipples. They say they look like cymbal drums. They say they look like saucers, which of course they are. Um, uh, but they, they have such distinctive... Uh, <laughs> they, they call these things so many different things. And then we see the Earthships, and they're definitively phallic. There yes. is no going about it with any other word. They just call them call them out for that every time. Uh, just with every every one of its anatomical features. <laughs> and yes, they again they do look so. They they look like they're they're nice models, but they they're not they're not film ready. They're they're just uh, there's definitely something that's you know, left to be desired for more contemporary audiences. But it, it has its charm. It has that KTMA charm. Mm-hmm. I was uh, looking online. It's because I love Claude Rain's performance in this, but he looks more tired than I've ever been in my life. And I re- this is 1961, he died, I think, 68. So, it was yeah, only a few years before. Um, I, I was just thinking about that uh, uh, the other day, um, uh, watching Sandman with a very respected actor that I love, Derek Jacobi. And it's like, oh, you know, the passage of time is just catching up. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I do feel bad seeing, seeing that. Um, because, you know, we, we always want these people to be around forever. <laughs> and that's, yeah. that's an inevitability of what, what happens in life. Um, so, you know, he's hoping for many more years to great actors. Is, you, you can see, you know, Claude Rains is, is tired here. Uh, but, or he, look, he looks older, he looks tired, but he doesn't let that get in the way of his performance. Again, this is... This is one of those marks. They liken him to Vincent Price, I think, in terms of just that, you know, I, I think that Christopher Lee ethos where you're in bad movies, but you don't act badly in them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And a lot of those actors 
when you see them like in their last few performances and they're doing physical acting, it's amazing because it's like they're saving up all of their energy for the scene. Where it's it's like they just get up and go, Alright, let let's shoot this damn thing. Let's do this. So, you know, before I get tired, come on, let's do this. And it's it's beautiful to see uh actors who care that much to just like you're on your way out and you're still giving it a hundred percent. Yeah, and they make comments on this with like let's say the hammock cuts. Um, which we have to get that trending for those 15 minutes that were cut out. Um, his sitting acting. But the him, fact that... Him in the know. hammock. Oh, I, sorry. Uh, don't, <laughs> don't worry. But I just love that, you know, in the world of acting, you know, you're supposed to be, well, active. And to see an actor just command so much presence just by sitting just speaks volumes to how much they can convey, even if they're just soldiering through. Um, mm -hmm. The fact that he remains one of the most powerful performers and not just, frankly, a decoration sitting around, which is what people usually convey with sitting acting, yeah. um, is, again, such a testament to Claude Rains as an actor. So let's go back to the hammock. <laughs> Claude Rains in the hammock. That is something I didn't know I needed in my life. And I'm so glad it has entered my life. Just seeing teeny tiny little Claude Rains swinging back and forth. It's oh, it's so cute. It's like it's like watching a watching one of the koalas hang from the trees. I like I know this sounds patronizing yes. to <laughs> the late great Claude Rains, but it that just brings me so much joy. Just. See him just lounging in a hammock. And again, it just seems like something this character would do, this Dr. Benson. Um, he, he just seems to really not give any any care for what others think. Yeah. Um, he He's probably someone who would show up to work in Hawaiian shirts and sandals mm -hmm. and just gold everyone for their lack of competence while well, he's just dressed up in this ridiculous attire. I, uh... There's a scene in this that I actually like, and that's when Claude Rains is talking to his bosses, who are basically like the masters of Earth, and they're all on different TV screens around the... Uh, it just felt... It felt so... 90s sci-fi just to have all these TVs yelling at you it, I, I just really liked that effect I thought it was pretty ahead of its time you see that like even into the mainstream to like let's say films like the Avengers with Samuel L. Jackson's Nick Fury talking to the people of the world but then yeah. you have the 60s television screens that just make it again just add such, such a charm to it and you know, it's it's become such a such a trope, and it's mm -hmm. almost ironic that we're saying this on Zoom. But uh, um, it, it's it's again just a visual that's ahead of its time, where you're the center. It draws attention to Claude Rains. Claude Rains, he's the one in power here in terms of characterization, in terms of what he has to say, uh, in terms of his ideas, his hypotheses, 
and the, all the screens are fixated on him. So they're watching him as an audience, and he's commanding that presence. And it's, I, I think there's a reason why we haven't retired that trope, and I'm, I'm glad to see it here in, you know, in this early 60s format. Yeah. It's a very neat effect. Uh, it kind of reminded me of the Agents of Fowl from Darkwing Duck. I'm also thinking of the white from Young Justice. Yeah. They, they, always, they always assemble with their Zoom conferences. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the astronauts on the planet, whenever they're on their planet, like, walking around in tight costumes, like terry cloth pants and button-up shirt, they look like the old-timey G.I. Joes with the Kung Fu grip. That, that was just a thing back then, like, if you wanted to be an action hero, you had to look like an old G.I. Joe, which was, which I guess were new G.I. Joes back then. Would they have even been around? I think that, that that's, like, 70s, uh, so that, that would have been interesting to see the little G.I. Joe. I think they started in the 60s, and then 70s was when they kind of, you know, pulled out all the stops, like, Oh, they got real hair and their eyes move around and, you know, they got the Kung Fu grip. I think that's when that happened. Okay. So that, that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, let's see. But, you know, they, they do have very... Again, I do think that action figure chic is probably the most accurate. They even make a comment that Trace does uh, um, where it's now Playmobil astronauts. Mm-hmm. Major Matt Moron. That was one that got me. Because I was always a Major Matt Mason fan. It's kind of funny just drawing that back to the toyetic nature of the ships. And so it, it just kind of comes full circle where art inspires toys, inspires films, inspires more, more yeah. toys. Yeah. A lot of people pointing out how a lot of fight sequences and movies are heavily are look heavily inspired by uh, fight combos from video games. And you can see yeah. it. Oh, yes. Uh, I, I'm just thinking, you know, with the, uh, like, Batman v Superman, when you see that warehouse exactly. fight, you can yeah. tell they, they love the, the Arkham games. Yeah, that that is pure Arkham. Mm-hmm. So we're getting, we're seeing those aesthetics really play off, and then like let's say experimentally driven films like Hardcore Henry, where it's all first person, mm-hmm. and you know they're they're playing with these gimmicks, they're just playing with what's what's part of that zeitgeist of of the time, and again we're seeing that with this drawing from sci-fi and drawing from well whatever resources they have available, and I think it's stuff like this that will that had ultimately inspired much greater efforts be like again those name brand 2001 your star wars things like that and it's just nice to see you know that that this that films like this really kept those traditions alive and oh, yeah. inspired others to really build upon that yeah it's it's great when like the kind of domino effect of creativity sets in um the destruction of the planet 
the planet they do destroy. I thought it looked neat because... And this is not because I think that seeing real disasters is neat. But it was a neat visual, I should say. Uh, mm -hmm. It looks like a mixture between experimental film and stock footage of actual destruction. And I think that also it's tinted completely red, which I think actually gives it a really good feel. Again, I'm just thinking about the actual effect because so many of these early films and television shows are crafted with that stage type direction in mind and just getting that red flare just shows that this is not to be taken lightly, I guess. Uh, because like you say, uh, just in prefacing that, that this is not to celebrate actual disaster. So I don't think it's meant to glorify any violence. The red symbolizes something that should be distressing to an audience. Um, mm -hmm. again, this is a dying or dead world, basically, with just a few survivors. And so it's, it's interesting to see that, that kind of, um, the kind of language of stage direction, uh, project itself in film, while also borrowing, again, like you mentioned, the, uh, stock disaster footage, um, that adds more of a reality that could never be captured on stage. So I just find that that interesting uh, how how they went about that. Oh yeah, it's like the difference between the Dracula play and the Dracula movie, or the Dracula play and the Dracula book. Like, cause the actual story is so expansive. They're like chasing each other on horseback around the Carpathian Mountains, and like there's there's like a legit full on action scene, fight scene at the end. But you can't really do that on stage. Mm -hmm. uh, I noticed that watching the film, we were an hour in. We at me. I was an hour in, and I just then learned that the woman is psychic. Be did they ever bring that up before? I don't think they did. Um, I, I really don't think they did. Um, I don't know why, that just reminds me of, uh, I, 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 I don't think that was ever brought up, and I'm just reminded of, like, let's say your accounts like Troy, just pointing out some of the most, more obvious things, Because uh, it's just like, don't worry, I, I can get into contact with him, I'm psychic. <laughs> you wanted that... You never said anything about this. We could have used this for technology. What is wrong with you? That, that was such a strange last last minute addition. Maybe it came a little earlier, but something that was lost in, in translation. I, I believe she was psychic if we, we had that cleared cleared up at the beginning, which just seems such a mm -hmm. such a distant thing. Where you know you could probably imagine that this is not outside the control center, but again this dream that's projected. Um, it, it would make sense, and maybe that is something lost in translation. But who, who can say? Who can say? Yeah. Something I like is that the aliens hate music, <laughs> which just makes me think that they're a race of Mike Nelsons. Because she's so critical on all different types of music, and like, oh, the alien race must be a race of Michael J. Nelson. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, speaking of the music tracks, they're, they're, they're just that interesting, upbeat, uh, sci-fi music scores where the tone doesn't really quite match from what we know as conventional music aesthetic, where this would probably go for something more peppy or something like that. And yeah, it's meant to be played at these most tense of moments. Mm-hmm. And you hear this little, uh, just this little band just playing these little rinky-dink songs. And it just seems it's not a place. It, it just catches the tone so weirdly. Um, it, it acts as almost a disservice, but I, I say this a lot. It's just part of the charm that we get all these disparate elements connected and and just they kind of hope for the best. Mm. Uh, Claude Rains cuts a dashing figure in his spacesuit. I mean, you'd think <laughs> a man of his age, you know, he'd get a little soft or, you know. Where we're going, we don't need glasses. I, I just thought that was a strange little... Uh, I, I mean, it's kind of touching because he wants to see it with his own eyes yeah. and things like that. But it's so strange to see that on screen because it does, it's, it's something that would read better on a, on a script or something that would read better um, in a book where you could kind of take that on where in, in the visual media it just looks kind of silly. Mm-hmm. The thing I love about that moment is them walking in place because I don't think they had enough money for like a traveling mat of a green screen. No, <laughs> so I just, they and they're that's the thing, they're all different colored, so they look like uh super sentai characters. Like the you know, the Power Rangers and stuff. And something I wanted to touch upon the the inside of the planet looks legit cool to me. I mean, I'm not talking about, like, the stuff that's tinfoil. The inside looks so... It looks very Giger. It looks very... Um, very Matthew Barney. The red corridors, I imagine? What? Those red corridors that we see? Yeah. Yeah, they look like... It looks like something from Metroid. It genuinely looks cool. Like, I'll give them that. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I think just getting that kind of bio, uh, that biomechanical uh, aesthetic is something that this film does kind of do a little well. I want to see just these, uh, even though they make fun of you can't see anything, it kind of adds to it because you can't make out what's distinct. You know, when you think of a Giger uh, aesthetic, you don't want to see the creature. You don't want to see the xenomorph because once you get familiar with it, that ruins the concept of it. You want to to remain in, in shadows, and I feel that that impetus is really seen in, in that because we can make our own inferences as to what 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 is this planet. Uh, yeah. I love that you bring up Metroid because you know just how much of the world is alive and how much of the world is mechanical is always ambiguous in those games. So I, I thought that was a, such an interesting sequence and the ominous red atmosphere just makes for something very special. Yeah, I think the confusion really adds to it because it reminds me of Galaxy of Terror 
with Sid Haig and Aaron Moran and Robert England. It's a it's a pretty uh, graphic movie, but a lot of it is in darkness and in corridors. And but they do it well. Like you don't see what is happening to them, or you don't see a lot of what is happening to them, or like a lot of actual. Like, it's more suggestive, really. Like, they do mm-hmm. show stuff that is more suggestive, so... I always, I'm always, i always a fan of not getting a clear shot of the monster. Mm-hmm. I, I feel these days we're, we're spoiled. We want that full shot, and sometimes keeping it ambiguous really, really helps, uh, um, I think only only one film uh, recently uh, has done that uh, well, where we do see the full shot. And uh, I, I don't know if you, if you got a chance to see Jordan Peele's Nope. No, I didn't. Nope. Okay, so we do see the creature, but it stay it never stays in one kind of form. So it still remains a mystery, even as you see it on full display. That sounds, that sounds pretty dope. I'll check that out. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, there's a great moment at the end where two things I noticed about Claude Rains' laugh is uh, when he smiles to open his mouth, clearly dentures. Like, they're too good-looking to be old man teeth. And second, something that really brought a, uh, you know, universal horror smile on my face. When Claude Rains laughs, it's the Dr. Griffin laugh. It, he just does it, and I'm like, I was taken, like, back to when I was, uh, I was taken back to, like, when I was younger doing that doing, uh, like, watching all those movies, and it just really hit me, and I really liked that. I thought it was neat. Mm-hmm. Apologies for that. Just nail. <laughs> all right, so, that, that, um, yeah, just seeing that laugh was great. It really was, and, it, 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 again, it's a little disconcerting, too, just the, the way it sounded, so. I thought, I thought that was an interesting shot. Yeah. Um, to be quite honest, I'm not going to lie, I didn't really follow the movie at all. And it wasn't, like, I can follow Rift movies. Some of these are just impenetrable. Like, it's just... It, I, I didn't really know what was going on, and I don't... I don't think I really needed to. I think uh, I, I had the same feeling on my first watch. Uh, I watched it live, and uh, it was one of those movies where, you know, I, I was following with the riffs, but the movie itself was a little harder to follow. I watched the second time, and it's, it's a little easier to follow. You get all the main points. It, um, it's almost like a Shakespeare play in the sense where a lot of what's being said is repeated often enough for the audience to get a general gauge of it. Um, once you get past just kind of the tedium of it. Uh, because uh, apart from Claude Rains, I, I don't feel this was an 
an easy watch, really. Um, yeah. It, it does feel kind of distant. It wasn't, uh, uh, when I first watched it, this wasn't a favorite, an, an instant classic, especially, you know, with the high hallmark of Frank found movies. Um, mm. But in uh, the, the second, like in the rewatch, you, you get to see a little more elements of, of what the movie's trying to get across. And it's, it's not a, it's not an incredibly um, uh, dense plot, but it does kind of drag its premise. It, it, it drags it throughout, um, uh, leaving some of the more interesting tidbits, like let's say psychic, uh, let's say the yeah. planet itself. It leaves those out. And uh, um, again, I can only assume a lot of that is just budgetary, just to focus more on the human drama um, instead of these more high effort um, shoots. Which is mm. unfortunate because they clearly did put in the sets, they did put in some other models other than the ships that could have probably been used and expanded upon. Um, so just, it's, it's again, it's just not one of the most easily accessible movies and even when you do access it, it's, it's not quite as rewarding. You're, you're still drawn to uh, uh, Claude Rains, Dr. Benson more than anything as, as the beating heart of the movie. So in allocating the budget there, I think they made the right call. The, there's something that was at the very ending of the movie. It was a riff and it, it slayed me. It absolutely killed me. And there's a guy in the uh, credits named Cosmo Diaz. It's Cosmo and then D-I-E-S. And Frank says, uh, Cosmo dies, the dark sequel to Singing in the Rain. And I'm like, uh-huh. I'm like, thank you, like, no notes, flawless victory. <laughs> flawless rip, flawless rip. And Frank got another one that just, well, you know, he always does those biting political satire riffs. But this one absolutely killed uh, for me and my partner, and that was the uh, when they entered the lab of Dr. Benson, and you see he has a little botanical garden area, yeah. and Frank just says so nonchalantly, "This was a trace rip. I know this was a trace rip, but Frank says it delivers it so so pat- so, so with the same energy as trace that it just becomes so great. Flowers for algorithm." and it's just it's just such a dumb goofy riff that it was just so great um just an unexpected reference uh to an unexpected thing it was it it was just fun that one that one got uh, quite a lot from us yeah it there's a joke that I heard it before I'd even watched the episode, and I loved it. I loved it when I watched the episode. And that's uh, the first time we see Claude Rains getting grumpy. We hear him say, At last, I cannot cannot have been invisible in this film. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that is is a good one. That is a good one. Uh, There's no shortage of good good riffs in in these mad shows, and it's it's something that's really great to watch as, as they, they usually have I, I think more so than 
um, some other rivers, they have such a great double act. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, with uh, Grace and Frank, where you can tell they're playing to each other. Like, let's say Frank, who's a fan of cult TV on 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 UTV mm-hmm. and things like that. And just with Frank, uh, with Trace playing into that um, um, during, oh, it's the intro to this such and such show. It's so great to see that that they, they have such a wonderful dynamic. That uh, it's it's really a delight to see. Um, they've been doing these shows for two years now, and they they've always had that that spark e- even through the digital medium. Yeah, I, I know they did live shows. I I'm afraid to say that I haven't seen any of them. Uh, I saw but, them when they came by the Alamo Draft House. Oh, I I am so kicking myself for that one because I think I had the day off as uh, my partner if we could if they wanted to go and um, we, we didn't wind up going and yeah they did they did Glenn or Glenda and the Tangler oh my yes I just love the reverence they have for Ed Wood you oh know, yeah Ed Wood's such a low hanging fruit target that it's so great to see that they are actually pretty passionate about his films um it's, be- it's because that, oh what oh go on it's because he was passionate about his films like he wasn't one of these guys that just crapped something out over a weekend no like Eddie was hunched over his typewriter he was thinking well what will I do what what, what comes next oh great I'll do this and I'll do this and like he he was like if I get the feeling if he was around in the 90s, he would be at least as big as Robert Rodriguez. You know what I mean? Like, somebody would have snapped him up and said, like, hey, you know, I don't know, it's just kind of a, th- a theory of mine. Like, mm-hmm. if if he was around today, people would go crazy for his stuff. People would, like, he'd make blockbusters, essentially. I mean, it's it's kind of, kind of like James Gunn, where, you know, you watch movies like Tromeo and Juliet, and Talks of Ender Part 4, and you're like, yeah, this guy's like rolling in it right now, <laughs> so. Maybe. I, I feel he'd almost be more of an M. Night Shyamalan, but with a very dedicated fan base, uh, just because of his... His embodiment of, let's say, queer culture. I, I feel that he yeah. would probably get that. You know, he would get those Rocky Horror fans. He'd get those uh, um, those type of fans that would be very dedicated to what, what he has to show off, even you know, for its happiness, because it's just made with such earnestness. Um, perhaps more so than Shyamalan, uh, and I, I I respect that, and I respect the Mads respect that because. Uh, yeah. I know I, I saw the Rift Tracks uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space, and for me it's just not a favorite of mine personally, because it just feels like, again, they're hitting all the easy marks instead of uh, yeah. what, could be, what could be something a little more in-depth, thoughtful, uh, things like that. Well, uh, I think uh, we've reached near the end, but... Uh, let's hear each other's analysis of uh, the film and the riff. I thought that the film was a very interesting bit of 
European um, science fiction. And I thought that the riff was very good. I think, you know, there's a lot of good back and forth play, which I love. And, uh, you know, there are some, the only boring spots are the boring spots made by the movie itself. But I think their riffs are really great. It's, uh, it reminded me of the last one they did, War of the Cosmos. And, uh, I like that one. I like this one for similar reasons. You could watch, like, a double feature of these two. So, that's what I think. What are your thoughts? My thoughts are that one of the biggest challenges of any riff is getting through those boring parts. So that can make or break a riff. Mm -hmm. This one really had good riffs uh, throughout, so I can't really say this riff was broken in any way. Plus, just Claude Rains uh, himself in the movie added so much personality, added so much mm -hmm. joy to, to the film that he himself was the one wading through the boring parts for the audience. Yeah. He was the one, he was the audience avatar. He was the riffing avatar. So there's no way not to love him. There's some great ideas here, uh, obviously held back by the limitations of the time, mm -hmm. um, that I don't think hinder it as much, uh, but it can be just, it can create that disconnect for an audience. So again, there's good concept. We have good elements, but it just doesn't coalesce as much as it should. But we do get Claude Rains, and that makes up for all of it. And for the riff, um, I just have to say, I love the cat talk now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's almost an extra element that's brought in because of the uh, digital nature of this. I'm just all here for the cat talk um, within the Mads. And as for the Mads themselves, again, they have such a great bond together. They have such a great sense of humor that appeals to me personally. Um, the more biting analysis, plus just, again, the goofier trace riffs. Mm -hmm. they, they have such a, a distinctive flavor as riffers that, you know, it's become such a comfort watch for me and my partners throughout the pandemic where we just laugh um, in spite of all the horrible things going on in the world. And... I'm just glad that they they kept us up for all uh, for all this time, even as they they can, they've clearly gone through life shows. I think that's been fun. So I'm I'm here for it. I love the match, and I'm glad that they get to occasionally drop in for the odd riff track. Oh yeah, I mean everyone knows their style, and it's all great. So I, I'm a fan of the match. Um, I, I'm really glad that this kind of offshoot of riffing has formed. It, yeah. it really, really creates its own identity. Um, I'm really, I really enjoy the work that they're doing with the other industries and just collaborating with so many artists. Um, kind of like uh, on what Riff Tracks would do, you know, in the early days, pulling up some yeah. strange names that they, they don't get as often these days, but yeah. they still... Uh, um, you know, your MTHs, your <laughs> Weird Al's, and mm -hmm. just these unexpected collaborations, and I like seeing that with, with, the, with the match as well. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So, uh, those are our 
Uh, closing thoughts on this episode, on this riff, not this episode of Riff Tries, but this riff. The Mads are back. Uh, Battle of the Worlds. So, uh, this has been Potting Riff Tracks, and goodbye, everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>